I first started running about 15 years ago as a way to quit smoking. Back then, my running clothes were very Rocky Balboa, so sweatpants, sweatshirt. Anyone who goes hiking or trail running knows that it's a lot easier and a lot more fun when you're wearing the right gear. Jonji makes performance apparel that'll take you farther on your runs and hikes. They have this merino wool hoodie that I wore on multiple trail runs this weekend. It's soft, it's warm, and most importantly, it does not get stinky when you get stinky. Another reason to love Jonji is that they donate 2% of all sales towards clean water projects, raising nearly $1 million so far. Head to Jonji.com to find your new favorite trail wear, outdoors accessories, and essentials. And use the code OUTSIDE for 10% off at Jonji.com. That's J-A-N-J-I.com with the code OUTSIDE for 10% off. When I was a little kid, my whole family, grandparents included, packed into a Dodge Caravan and went on a two-week road trip to Wyoming. We saw the rodeo in Cody, a grizzly bear in Yellowstone National Park, and an epic thunderstorm near Devil's Tower. On that trip, I fell in love with the West and the natural world. This might sound cheesy, but it kind of made me who I am today. Wyoming has it all. Breathtaking hikes, kid-friendly museums, two of the coolest national parks in the country. The truth lies West. Discover yours at TravelWyoming.com. Everyone knows therapy is great for solving problems, but getting therapy has its own problems too, like finding the right therapist, fitting into their schedule, and of course, the cost. Well, BetterHelp can solve those problems. It's totally online and built around your schedule. It's surprisingly affordable too. Connect with a credentialed therapist by phone, video, or online chat, all from the comfort of your home. Visit betterhelp.com to learn more and save 10% on your first month. That's BetterHelp, H-E-L-P. What was your favorite scene from the movie? It's it's definitely that that part in the beginning, right? When Alan pulls his glasses off and he's looking out and then... This is Gabriel Philip Santos, paleontologist, movie buff, and self-professed nerd. And the camera pans and then Hammond's all like, welcome to Jurassic Park. To Jurassic Park. And then the music starts playing. When Gabriel saw Jurassic Park in theaters, he was just four years old. And it was so awesome, and I was so hyped for the rest of the movie. And then things changed when there was that huge tone shift, and then it became a horror movie. And I was pretty much, like, burying it for the most part until the kitchen scene with the velociraptors. (laughs) Unfortunately, I got so scared, my mom had to pull me out of the theater at that time. I just love that you were four years old and this is a PG-13 movie. But even though his mom had to take him out of the theater, even though he was not yet in kindergarten, Gabriel loved this movie. That is definitely one of those core memories, as they call it, for me. And Gabriel was not alone. I was obsessed with Jurassic Park when I was a kid. Producer Taylor Quimby still is. He snuck clips of Jurassic Park into at least 
two different episodes of Outside In. If the movie was replayed, like, would you be able to, like, quote whole sections of it? My favorite one to say on a regular basis is uh, the Samuel L. Jackson line, hold on to your butts. (laughs) With a cigarette dangling from his mouth. Hold on to your butts. I I also randomly pull out, like, "Uh -uh uh-uh-uh, you didn't say the match quick. I have that go through my head when I can't get the password in. Like, I've forgotten a password to, like, a really important website. I was like, "Uh uh-uh-uh, didn't say the magic word. Uh -uh -uh." Uh-uh-uh, Nedry, yeah. None of this is surprising, right? When it first came out in 1993, Jurassic Park was the highest grossing film of all time. It kicked off a franchise that's still going today. We're talking lunchboxes, Lego sets, comic books, kids' cartoons, and a total of six blockbuster movies. The latest of which is hitting theaters the same day this episode is hitting your feeds. What is that? Biggest carnivore the world has ever seen. But more than that, Jurassic Park reinvigorated public interest in dinosaurs. If you're anything like me, just about everything you know about the subject comes from this franchise. How much of the general public knowledge about dinosaurs do you think can be attributed to the Jurassic Park franchise in some way? The general public, maybe 80%, maybe. I'm really bad at statistics, but yeah, maybe like 80%. That sounds good to me. So is that a good thing? I mean, what happens when you're learning science from a monster movie? Hmm. Hold on to your butt. This is Outside In. I'm Nate Hedgie. And today, we're going back in time to talk about how the Jurassic Park franchise has both advanced and misinformed the lay public's understanding of dinosaurs. Joining us is resident dinosaur nerd Taylor Quimby, who is still mad that the Jurassic World raptors aren't scientifically accurate. Team Feathers, represent. (laughs) And Gabriel Philip Santos, an actual paleontologist who thinks maybe it's not such a big deal. I'm not going to harp on it. I'm not going to, like, fixate on that. So, Taylor. Yes? For the very few folks who never saw it, do you think you could summarize Jurassic Park in just like a few words? And obviously, spoiler warning, if that even applies here. Right. Uh, Okay. Scientists clone dinosaurs using ancient DNA. Rich guy creates dinosaur theme park on remote tropical island. Um, Dinosaurs escape and kill and destroy island. Pretty much it. (laughs) Um, So I loved Jurassic Park growing up, too. But, Taylor... You argue that you are more of a stand than I am. Oh, yeah. Well, when I, when I was growing up, I wanted to be a paleontologist because of this movie. So did I. But uh, that didn't work out for us, did it? No, it did not. <laughs> it's never too late, though, so don't push me. That's true. <laughs> That's true. And, and you still follow Dinosaur News today, right? I do. And, uh, and, and one thing I didn't appreciate when I was a kid is that Jurassic Park came out at the end of a period that scientists call the dinosaur renaissance. Um, mm-hmm. So we know today that modern birds evolved from a a subgroup of dinosaurs called theropods, right? This velociraptor and T-Rex, things like that. Yeah, these are carnivores, a.k.a. metasauruses, right? The metasauruses, exactly. And the bird connection was actually made way back when the first feathered dinosaur was discovered in 1862. Bonus points if you know it. Uh, 
okay, plus one for Taylor. I'm being <laughs> a bigger dinosaur Jurassic Park fan. It is Archaeopteryx. Third grade version of me knew that. But anyway, this this connection was largely dismissed because at that point, uh, most fossils did not appear to have a furcula or what you and I would call a wishbone. No furcula, eh? Yeah. What the furcula, right? <laughs> you were just setting yourself up for that one, weren't you? I was. You had that I one was. in your back pocket. <laughs> uh, but, but listen, even as uh, all this started to change in the 1960s during the dinosaur renaissance and scientists started to see more and more links to today's warm-blooded birds, movies continued to depict dinosaurs as these lumbering, cold-blooded reptiles. So this is a, a clip from 1977's The Last Dinosaur. And Nate, what, what does this T-Rex look like to you? Oh, it looks like someone saw Godzilla and was like, how can we make it worse? And so they created <laughs> this monstrosity. It looks like a man in a rubber suit. <laughs> that dude is roasting in there. <laughs> But, but, you know, a lot of the dinosaurs depicted throughout these decades, you know, you'd see them looking a lot like this, like Godzilla. Like, they're, they're standing mm-hmm. straight, straight up. Right. And that was, that, all that stuff was just standard, even as the science was changing, right up until Jurassic Park. So that, obviously, is the iconic T-Rex roar from Jurassic Park. Yes, it's awesome. And... That's a mix, by the way, Taylor, of an elephant, an alligator, and tiger sounds. Hmm. And I want to say that in the newer movies, the sound designers used a lot of walrus sounds, too. I don't know what a walrus sounds like. Uh, it probably sounds a little bit like a dinosaur. <laughs> awesome. So I think it's easy to forget, because it's been out so long, right, how revolutionary mm-hmm. Jurassic Park really was. The dinosaurs were faster and scarier, and they were more lifelike than they'd ever been before. And science wasn't just a plot device, right? The movie seemed to be saying, you think you know dinosaurs? Well, think again. Seriously. (laughs) Well, maybe dinosaurs have more in common with present-day birds than they do with reptiles. Look at the pubic bone. So this is the paleontologist from the film, Dr. Alan Grant, played by Sam Neill. And he's looking right now at a, a velociraptor fossil. Look at the vertebrae, full of air sacs and hollows, just like a bird. And even the word raptor means bird of prey. That doesn't look very scary. <laughs> Little brat. More like a six-foot turkey. Oh, are you going to play the best part where he's like, slashes you here? Here. <laughs> okay. Right across the belly, spilling the intestines. Oh, wow, you do know your Jurassic Park. It's very good. The point is, you are alive when they start to eat you. So, you know, try to show a little respect. Okay. I mean, just as like a from a, a film buff point of view, this is fantastic in-scene exposition. Yes. But more than that, it is actually teaching the audience about the dinosaur renaissance. Like, this is a cool little history lesson about how birds evolved from dinosaurs. So, you know, my argument, Jurassic Park is an amazing monster movie. But it's its emphasis on dinosaur science that partially what made it resonate with so many kids. I own all three. I have the special editions and everything. When when three came out, I was obsessed with the Spinosaurus, just like a lot of other people. Um, but yeah, no, nothing beats one for me. Same. So 
So this, again, is Gabriel Philip Santos. Uh, as you know, Nate, I reached out to Gabriel because he, he sort of sits squarely at this intersection of paleontology and pop culture. He specialized in marine mammal paleontology, but today he oversees the fossil collection at a place called the Raymond M. Alf Museum of Paleontology in California. And as a movie geek, you know, he's not afraid to lean into the fandom in order to get people into science. He and some friends actually started this group called Cosplay for Science. And, for example, he dressed up as Dr. Alan Grant at a Comic-Con in Pasadena to teach people about fossils. They weren't looking at us as scientists bestowing information onto the, the less intelligent. They saw us as just other nerds who they can connect with. And then when they discovered we were actually paleontologists, something changed. Their eyes lit up and they're like, I've been talking to a paleontologist this whole time. I have questions for you. And, you know, we've done it with Star Wars, Pokemon, Game of Thrones, so many other cool franchises where folks just find us and connect with us as as people, as as people who love paleontology, um, who love science. Do you have any peers who became paleontologists, at least in part because of the Jurassic Park movies? Oh, yeah. I have a ton of friends in paleontology who can really attribute them deciding to become a paleontologist because of that movie. You know, they call us the Jurassic Park generation. Funny enough, I'm actually not one of them who became a paleontologist because of Jurassic Park, but really? a lot of my friends did become paleontologists because of it. So you don't think there was like an inner Dr. Alan Grant who was just like screaming to get out and... <laughs> you know, there there might have been, but it was like very, very deep in my mind and very drowned out by the voices of uh, my parents, who I love, who are very supportive of my career now. But, you know, that's how it was back in the day. Do you know if the movies have shaped actual research in any way, like whether certain projects get funded or which dinosaurs get more attention? Like, do the movies have any kind of role in that, do you think? You know, I, I do think that the movies have played a part in which paleontologists that were inspired by them, what they decide to work on. And that leads to very specific discoveries, you know, like there are some friends of mine who, who actually work on Tyrannosaurids and, you know, some of their first exposure to that was from the movie. Right. It, yeah. Jurassic Park is literally like, like, well, not literally figuratively like a Tyrannosaurus, like lurking in the background of the field of, of paleontology. Yeah. Definitely. As a marine mammal paleontologist, that, that tyrannosaur can get a little annoying. So I'm just kidding. I'm just kidding. <laughs> <laughs> I bet it can, though, sometimes. Does it ever get kind of annoying when it's like everybody's focused on T-Rex, Velociraptor? Does that ever get like frustrating to you at all? Like You're like, hey, but what about like this really cool marine mammal? It, is, it does get frustrating sometimes when, you know, I see such amazing work from so many paleontologists out there who work in the, you know, the two billion years worth of life history on Earth. And dinosaurs is just a small part of that. And a lot of these amazing paleontologists, their work doesn't get the same amount of attention. It doesn't get, you know, like the huge press releases and stuff. But as an educator, that connection to those tyrannosaurs, the velociraptor, those are amazing opportunities to connect people to the greater world of paleontology. And so personally, yeah, I get a little frustrated. I get a little annoyed. But I don't want it's not something that's negative that I ever want to make someone like, how, why do you only like dinosaurs? So here's a really obvious example of how Jurassic Park influenced the field of paleontology. In the movie, they're able to clone dinosaurs because they discover fossilized amber with ancient mosquitoes trapped inside, right? And the, the mosquitoes still have dinosaur blood in their little bug bellies or whatever. <laughs> 
Well, the same year that Jurassic Park was released, Jack Horner, the science advisor to the film, was awarded a grant to study ancient DNA. Wait, doesn't that seem a little ironic? Like, it didn't work out so well in Jurassic Park. You'd think that maybe they'd steer clear. <laughs> yeah, I would think that. Our scientists have done things which nobody's ever done before. Yeah, yeah, but your scientists were so preoccupied with whether or not they could, they didn't stop to think if they should. And to be clear, I should point out that it is not possible to clone dinosaurs, and we do not actually have dinosaur DNA from fossilized amber. Mm -hmm. But anyways, there have been other less ironic ripple effects. After the movie, museums apparently rushed to have more dinosaur exhibits. That also meant hiring more paleontologists and people who could talk about dinosaurs. And the field has exploded. So, you know, we have the dinosaur renaissance. Well, today... Uh, is referred to as the golden age of paleontology. An average of 45 new dinosaurs have been discovered every year since 2003. Wow. But here's the thing. Even though Jurassic Park revolutionized the public perceptions of dinosaurs, it also kind of froze it in time. So when we talked with Gabriel, I conducted a little experiment. You remember this, Nate? Uh, yes, unfortunately, I do. And Nate, I'm sorry to, to put you on the spot, but can you just list off... All of the dinosaurs that you can as fast as possible that you know the names of. Go now. Yeah, do it. Tyrannosaurus Rex, Velociraptor, Utah Raptor, Ovaraptor, Stegosaurus, uh, Triceratops, Brachiosaurus, Brontosaurus, um, oh God, the duck billed dinosaur, which I can't remember its scientific name. What are the little ones? Procompsognathus? <laughs> Yeah, copies. <laughs> the copies. copies. Yeah, copies. Okay, so then I asked Gabriel to do the same thing. Yeah, I mean, there's been a ton of dinosaurs discovered even in like the last 10 years. Like, you know, let's see, like Dreadnoughtus, Sauro Poseidon, um, Mononychus, uh, Therizinosaurs, um, Alvarosaurids, like Tarposaurus from Mongolia, um, Teratophonius, Diabloceratops. This is no longer a valid taxon, but I still love the name is Dracorex hogwartsia, which is just a pachycephalosaurid. I feel so bad because I don't recognize a single one of those dinosaurs, which definitely shows that my knowledge is based off of Jurassic Park. And if you were going to put like a percentage on it, how much of the general public knowledge about dinosaurs do you think can be attributed to Jurassic Park or the Jurassic Park franchise in some way? Uh, the general public, maybe 80%. Maybe I'm really bad at statistics, but yeah, maybe like 80%. That sounds good to me. So what all this means, Nate, is that 80% of the public is very wrong about a lot of dinosaur science. Because a lot of the most famous dinosaurs we know today look nothing like they did in Jurassic Park. And that's what we're going to talk about after a break. But first, a quick reminder that Outside In is listener supported. We don't put the show behind a paywall. We just put it out there into the world and hope that everyone who loves it will make the choice to toss us a few bucks. I mean, who would guess that would work? But it does. Life finds a way, Nate. Indeed it does, Taylor. Indeed it does. <laughs> so donate now. There's a link in the show notes. We'll be right back. He left us. 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 <laughs> but that's not what, what I'm, I'm going to do. 
this is the best. So good. Hey, everybody. It's Rob Lowe here. If you haven't heard, I have a podcast that's called Literally with Rob Lowe. And basically, it's conversations I've had that really make you feel like you're pulling up a chair at an intimate dinner between myself and people that I admire, like Aaron Sorkin or Tiffany Haddish, Demi Moore, Chris Pratt, Michael J. Fox. There are new episodes out every Thursday. So subscribe, please, and listen wherever you get your podcasts. Want to connect with a family member who doesn't speak your language? Then check out the language learning program Rosetta Stone on desktop or as an app. Rosetta Stone is designed to immerse you in the language you're learning through an intuitive process. Plus, the True Accent feature even gives you feedback on your pronunciation. And with a lifetime membership, you have access to all 25 offered languages. Get started today. Visit rosettastone.com backslash pod 50 to get 50% off your lifetime membership now. That's rosettastone.com backslash pod 50 for 50% off. Hey, everyone. It's Ted from Consumer Cellular, the guy in the orange sweater, and this is your wake-up call. If you're paying too much for wireless service, you don't have to keep having that nightmare. Consumer Cellular has the same fast, reliable coverage as the leading carriers for less. And for a limited time, new customers receive their second month free when they sign up and use promo code MONTHFREE by May 31st. So why keep spending more than you have to? Seriously, wake up and call 1-888-FREEDOM or visit ConsumerCellular.com. Taxes, fees, and other third-party charges will apply. See website for additional details. Hey, and welcome back to Outside In. I'm Nate Hedgie, here with producer Taylor Quimby, who was just telling me that Jurassic Park is full of lies. Lies. So what kind of stuff are we actually talking about here? Well, I mean, really, it's just a lot of little things. So uh, you remember the acid-spitting dinosaur that eats the guy who played Newman in Seinfeld? The, uh, the Dilophosaurus, right? Dilophosaurus. I heard that it doesn't actually have that big frilly thing around its neck, right? So, yes, that is true, but also it did not spit acid. I know. <laughs> did you know that uh, instead of being like four feet tall and sort of cute, they were way bigger, like eight feet tall, 800 pounds? What? Yeah. I didn't, I did, I will admit, Taylor, I did not know that. Okay, so that's, that's what I'm talking about here. Also, uh, a, a T Rex's vision. Um, His vision is based on movement. <laughs> That's what you've been led to believe, Nate. Keep absolutely still. This vision's based on movement. So you mean I couldn't just survive a T-Rex attack by standing still? Uh, no. And even if you could, like, I'm pretty sure it could smell you. Right. Also, real velociraptors were much smaller than the movie version, which was based off a different dinosaur called Deinonychus. Less cool name. Uh, yes. I think a lot of this stuff is very easily overlooked, especially in the first movie. But there is one huge thing that I keep coming back to because it isn't like a little detail. And it's bothered me and a whole bunch of other people more and more with every Jurassic sequel. And it's mm-hmm. this. Velociraptor and Deinonychus and a whole bunch of other dinosaurs were totally covered in feathers. Which, I, I don't know if we talked about this when I pitched the episode. Yeah, were you aware of that? Yeah, yeah, I knew that they had feathers. I think I read about it in a book. And does this drive you as bananas as it drives me? Nope. I mean, does this, like, get under your skin? <laughs> but you, you got pretty worked up about this. I do remember that. Like, maybe even more than the actual paleontologists were. Yeah, well, uh, l- let me explain why. 
A few years ago, my son, who's 10 right now, he went through a pretty big dinosaur phase, as a lot of kids do. And so we mm-hmm. went to the library to pick out some books at some point. And there's just a whole ton of them in the kids section, of course. Some of them are illustrated storybooks for little, little kids. And then there's the sort of like, you know, early educational books that are cool and not too heavy and that kind of thing. Right. And yeah. as I start flipping through all of these, I realize almost all of them feature the same handful of dinosaurs with the same scaly skin that was modeled decades and decades ago. And maybe I should have expected that, but, like, you make a book in 1975, that book is still maybe going to be in the library in 2022. Right. It's one thing to put something out in 1993 and then have the science evolve and, like, you know, and because things become outdated. That is just the way it happens. But it's another thing to keep doing it once you know it's wrong. Because... Then you are spreading misinformation. Right. Yeah. I mean, does it matter? All the dinosaurs are dead, you know? It's not like your misinformation about great white sharks that causes people to have undue fear of great white sharks, even though your chances of actually getting killed by them are really, really, really low. But, like, if people actually watched Jaws and that was the basis of all their scientific understanding of sharks, like, that would be a problem, right? Right. Right. Okay, yeah. No, this is, yeah, this is a... uh I mean, this is a problem, especially if you're trying to teach your kid. So I can see where it'd be, it would be frustrating, especially for a nerdy guy like yourself. <laughs> oh, yeah. Thank you. <laughs> so uh, to get back to our story, um, after the original Jurassic Park, there was this growing desire among dinosaur nerds like myself to see some feathers, uh, you know, in the movies. There is also another mm-hmm. wing of fans, I should say, who basically think feathered dinosaurs are not as scary and look kind of dumb and feel like their childhood mm-hmm. is being ruined <laughs> by this push for, you know, scientific accuracy. And I don't want to get too far into the weeds yeah. here because this is probably a very small group of people. But there are definitely some online trolls who argue that feathered dinosaurs are part of like a left wing push to stamp out masculinity or something, which I, what? I yeah, I mean, I've read some. Yeah, those are weeds that we don't need to get into. That seems a little kooky to me. <laughs> yes, but but the point is is that when the franchise announced the reboot, Jurassic World, there was just a lot of opinions flying around. And then on March 20th, 2013, the director, Colin Trevorrow, tweeted two controversial words. No feathers. Hashtag JP4. Ooh. Yeah, gauntlet thrown. Yeah. Okay, so back to our conversation with paleontologist Gabriel Philip Santos. There was definitely some discourse, like, in social media and the circles I ran in about, like, why aren't they adding feathers to the dinosaur? This is, this is terrible. This is going to change. This is going to mess with people's perceptions of science and dinosaurs and things like that. So, yeah, there definitely was a lot of talk about it. And yeah. a lot of people were very upset. And I understand why they were upset. Um, as to why they didn't include feathers on, like, the the Velociraptor. But I wasn't really one of them. <laughs> <laughs> so you weren't bothered by it that much that they didn't have feathers? Why, why weren't you bothered? I, you know, like, I have, I have a good group of friends who we're all kind of sort of in the same boat, and I know I might get hate for this, but for me, the Jurassic Park, Jurassic World franchise, it's a science fantasy, science fiction movie, right? right. When they create these movies... The, the, the people who are creating it, what they're trying to do is tell a story. Um, they don't have any real obligations to be scientifically accurate. Um, they don't really have an obligation to be like, you can use our movie as an educational resource. Mm-hmm. They're just trying to make something that in, 
in a very capitalistic sense, will make money, will bring in audiences. And for a lot of people, that old look of dinosaurs, that monster look is mm -hmm. what can draw people in. And again, for me, it's not their job to make sure that they're up to date on all the latest research to make sure that people are leaving the theater having a better understanding of the science of paleontology. Their job is to tell a story of man's hubris in thinking they can control nature for capitalistic gain. Um, for me, it's our job as the paleontologists and the educators to bring in to bring in people and say, like, did you love that movie? Did you see the dinosaurs? They look so cool, right? Yeah. But <laughs> Let me show you how we think they look like now. Yeah. Can I just jump in and say, you know, for for my part, because I was definitely, <laughs> I was definitely somebody who was like poo pooing the no feathers uh, when the Jurassic World movies came out, and a big part of it for me <laughs> was that I thought that the feathers were so cool that I actually I was like I think it would be awesome, not just for like some sense of scientific accuracy, although I, I'm like for that, but, but I think it, it could have been revolutionary. Like it could have blown people's minds. And I dislike the notion that a feathery dinosaur is not scary looking because like, have you seen raptors? Like there are some freaky birds out there who are terrifying, <laughs> especially when you cover their white feathers in blood, for goodness sakes. Like, I think it could have been really cool. And so it seemed like a missed opportunity to me. No, I totally agree with you. I think I've been chased by geese. I know how scary <laughs> birds are. Um, but I also, you know, I've seen the discourse of people like, you know, I used to scroll through Tumblr. Yeah. Everyone has their own perception of what's scary and what's not. And um, don't get me wrong. I do think that if they included feathers, it would have been a great job to change the perceptions of what we consider, of what we think about dinosaurs. But I'm also not going to, I'm not going to harp on it. I'm not going to like fixate on that when when we could do that. Do you think on the whole people know more or less about dinosaurs because of the films? I people definitely know more about dinosaurs because of those films. Like, mm -hmm. you know, there's still good there's there's a lot of good in that movie. Like first of all, just the fact that they can understand scientific nomenclature right yeah. like triceratops tyrannosaurus rex velociraptor these are scientific names so that's really cool just the fact that they know these dinosaurs walking into a museum they can see a fossil and understand that this was once a living animal and know what they are so without those movies i don't there's so many people who may not know what a dinosaur is who may not go see a museum because they didn't get that exposure to a dinosaur and then expand their mind from there. So I, I, I think Jurassic Park did a, a wonderful thing for a lot of people in getting them to know that there was life before us here on the planet Earth. Yeah. He makes a great point. I mean, I, how many other scientific names do people know about like your average animal? Yeah, exactly. Yeah. Exactly. Yeah. No. It's it's a it's a wonderful point. I mean, I don't even know what the scientific name is for a great white shark, or you know, half of the animals that are still living on this earth. So I love Jurassic Park. I know you did too, but I, I never had yep. a lot of love for the sequels. Um, obviously, one thing I've realized doing this story is that the people who love the franchise, like as a whole, for them, these movies are a universe in themselves, like the Marvel universe or Star Wars or Star Trek. And mm -hmm. a lot of them, they just don't care about the science as much as they do the consistency of the storytelling, which, mm -hmm. you know, that's that's a valid point. So so 
just to get a sense of what I mean, I want to play a video clip from this YouTuber named Clayton Fioriti, who has produced literally hundreds of videos just about the Jurassic World universe. And, and they get anywhere from, you know, 50 to several hundred thousand views apiece. Camp Cretaceous recently showed off a couple of female T-Rexes that look way inaccurate to what was already established as coming from Isla Sorna. So this is something that I felt like I might as well talk about. Well, the movie still has a few months left before its release. Canon is important. If you don't have canon, you don't have rules, you don't have a universe. So that's kind of important for me to throw out there. And little issues in the canon like this are actually more serious than I think most people realize. And they're totally. So you get the idea, right? Like, yeah. Well, this guy's like the number one fan. This he beats all of us. It's not even that he's the number one fan. It's like he approaches this from such a completely different perspective that I'm like, oh, yes. Like he and I are not even a part of the same argument. And and didn't they come up with a retroactive explanation for why they don't have feathers in the new movie anyways? They did. There's a throwaway line about how using amphibian DNA during the cloning process right. means that these dinosaurs, they're genetically modified. They wouldn't look the way they would have millions of years ago. Right, I, yeah. Mm-hmm. So I think Gabriel, like he's just much more understanding of what fandom is and how fans are interacting with the movies differently. And he pointed out something that was interesting to me, that science education is a form of privilege. And if pro-feather people aren't careful, they can wind up doing a lot more damage than good. Some people might call me naive or whatever, but I don't like to be negative about these kinds of things because, you know, a lot of people don't like to interact with scientists because they might feel they have this perception of like, oh, I don't want to sound dumb or -hmm. science isn't for me. And when you go on Twitter and you're like saying things like, I can't believe that you like that because there's no feathers do you imagine how many people are going to read that and feel bad and just pull away further from science versus like, it's a movie. It's fine that it's not real. It's okay. So Taylor, you've obviously been more aggressive on the feather front than Gabriel. Yeah. Team feathers. <laughs> did he say anything that, that resonated with you though? He said a lot that did. And you know, like I'm into a lot of nerdy stuff and it was interesting talking to him to realize how inconsistent I am about Like Mm -hmm. when I do and do not choose to suspend disbelief for the sake of entertainment. But the biggest thing he said that changed my mind on some of these issues was about a type of scientific accuracy that gets totally ignored in the feather debate and something that the new movies have done much better than the original trilogy, representation. For something like Jurassic Park, even in the very first few movies, the majority of the cast was white, but Mm -hmm. there are paleontologists of color there are paleontologists all around the world and still we continue to do that to this day where scientists are perceived as mostly white male people who wear lab coats and Mm -hmm. are often you know shown to be um, socially inept or neurodivergent you know Mm -hmm. and it's shown in sometimes in such a negative negative way that I think that is where um, they have a greater responsibility in showing how science is and getting people's perception of science. That's why I don't think the feather thing is so high up on my list when there are so many more things that I feel like they have a responsibility to show in movies. Like if you were, let's say Universal Pictures tapped you to be the director of the next Jurassic World, like what things would you be like, I really want to make sure this is accurate, whether it's the representation of, of who the scientists are, things like that. And like if you were to pick like top three things that are would be important to you to like make sure are absolutely accurate while the rest you can be like, go to the wolves, have fun with it. It's just a it's just a blockbuster movie. Ooh, OK, you're giving me a lot of power here. So 
if I was if I was in charge of directing a movie, um, which you know, if if somebody's out there is listening, I'm I'm welcome to take that call. <laughs> the first thing I would definitely do is really show kind of the hardships when it comes to working in the field of paleontology. So that's funding, right? Like you see like Dr. Grant's and Dr. Sattler's camp in the first movie and even in the trailer for Jurassic World, no way in heck does a field camp look that nice, right? So that's just something I would try to have. Just It's a little thing, but I feel like it goes a little bit long, a long way of showing really what field paleontology could look like and give people just a better idea of what, what we do out there. Yeah. Second, like you had said, I really would love to just cast something that's much more diverse with Mm -hmm. more backgrounds and um, different types of opinions within paleontology, right? So let's, I know Dr. Ellie Sattler is a paleobotanist, but Mm -hmm. you don't really get to see that other than a few lines here and there. Showing paleontologists from international places that are experts, like, you know, velociraptors from Mongolia. There are really awesome Mongolian paleontologists out there who are doing that work, um, but nobody knows their name. Nobody knows who they are. And, yeah. you know, same thing if we're talking about dinosaurs from South America, Africa, really getting to show, like, this is a global field, right? It's not just North America in the badlands of Montana. It's not some dude who looks like Indiana Jones wearing a cowboy hat and a plaid, which I do own, but I don't wear it all the time. Um, but it, that, I think I think that could create this cool connection for other folks who watch this movie and be like, that person, that character looks a lot like me and they're a scientist. That That's cool. I could do that. Um, and I think the last one, you know, if, if it was up to me, I would try to make the dinosaurs a little bit more accurate, you know, because I have that ability. I have the knowledge. Yeah. I would give them the feathers. I would make them a little bit chunkier, too, I would say. Um, but that's me as a paleontologist getting the role of a director. Gabriel, thanks so much for talking with us. It was, it was totally my pleasure. Like, I love being able to... Uh, freely rant about my passions and education and storytelling in Jurassic Park. So Taylor, are you going to see the new movie, Jurassic World Dominion? Well, big trailer came out a few months ago. And uh, guess what? Mm-hmm. They're bringing in some feathered dinosaurs. What? Are they really? Yeah, pyroraptor. What is a pyroraptor? Fire raptor? <laughs> Maybe it's going to like sh- shoot flames out of its mouth. There's a fire <laughs> raptor. Whoa. Uh, anyway, yeah. I mean, I've been complaining about this for years. And if they're going to put feathers in there, like I should go ahead and see it in theaters just because. Mm-hmm. What about you? Uh, you know, uh, I don't know. I'll see with my dad and he'll really love it. And I'll be like, oh, I didn't like it as much. And he'll be like, oh, it was awesome. You shouldn't take it so seriously. <laughs> We've got links to a couple of Taylor's book recommendations for parents looking for cool and up-to-date dinosaur books for kids. Those are at OutsideInRadio.org and in our show notes. And for people curious to learn more about dinosaurs, Apple TV is out with a series called Prehistoric Planet right now, hosted and narrated by, who else? David Attenborough. Which, by the way brother of Richard Attenborough, 
who played Dr. John Hammond in the original Jurassic Park. Oh my God, I didn't know that. Look at that. Big points for that one. I get plus five for that (laughs) one. And by the way, tell us what you think about the new Jurassic World. Are you Team Feathers, Team Scaly Skin, Team Chris Pratt, Team Alan Grant, (laughs) a.k.a. Sam Neill? No shame either way. Tweet Uh us at Outside In Radio or join our private Facebook page and hit the comments. This episode of Outside In was produced by Taylor Quimby and me, Nate Hedgie. It was mixed by Taylor, edited by me and Rebecca Lavoie. Rebecca Lavoie is our executive producer. Music for this episode by Sarah the Instrumentalist, Panda Raps, Matt Large, Ballpoint, and Vellante. Our theme is by Breakmaster Cylinder. Outside In is a production of New Hampshire Public Radio. Hey, everybody. It's Rob Lowe here. If you haven't heard, I have a podcast that's called Literally with Rob Lowe. And basically, it's conversations I've had that really make you feel like you're pulling up a chair at an intimate dinner between myself and people that I admire, like Aaron Sorkin or Tiffany Haddish, Demi Moore, Chris Pratt, Michael J. Fox, There are new episodes out every Thursday, so subscribe, please, and listen wherever you get your podcasts. The living room is where you make life's most beautiful memories, but your sofa shouldn't be the one remembering them. The new life-resistant, high-performance furniture collection from Ashley is designed to withstand all the spills, slip-ups, and muddy paws that come with the best parts of life. Ashley high-performance sofas and recliners are soft, on-trend, and easy to clean. Shop the high-performance furniture in-store or online at ashley.com. Ashley, for the love of home.